All right, well, kiddos are dismissed to Children's Church, and if you have your Bibles, open up to the Old Testament, 2 Samuel chapter 9, we're going to be looking at verses 1 through uh, 13 here, the whole chapter there of 2 Samuel chapter 9. Uh, before we get into that, I was thinking this week about things in this life, things in this world that are amazing. And I was thinking about, for instance, the, the things that we get to taste, like a good, juicy, greasy pizza. Isn't that just amazing? There's something about that flavor combination that is just, mm, that's good. Or how about, how about frozen custard? Who is the genius who invented frozen custard? I mean, that stuff is absolutely amazing. Or how about, how about chocolate cake with chocolate frosting? Now, if you're not a chocolate nut, you wouldn't care about that. But a chocolate nut, that makes me drool. I mean, it's like, just, mm, good, right? Well, then I was thinking about some other stuff that is amazing. To think that you can hop on a plane and in less than 24 hours literally be anywhere on the globe in 24 hours. That's pretty amazing, isn't it? When you figure there's tens of thousands of miles in travel. Then I think about how amazing just this world is, is itself, just the, the beauty that this world contains. You know, I think of the mountains. Aren't they beautiful? You ever seen the mountains? Just the snow caps and the, they're just beautiful. I think of the ocean or something about it that's just absolutely gorgeous, especially when you get out on it and just the, how deep and blue the ocean is is amazing. And uh, or, or how, do you, how do you not look up at the star, starry night sky and just go, wow, man, my God created all of that, put all the stars in their place, knows them all by name. Look at the animal life around us. Isn't that amazing? There's a beauty that is there. I'll, I'll never forget being in Africa a couple years ago and, and getting to go on a safari. And you talk about something amazing, just being out there on the African plain, looking out at giraffes and water buffaloes and all these crazy animals that you only see on the national. I mean, that's just amazing. God, I, I, just looking at God's beauty. And then I think about the relationships that we get to experience. How amazing is, it, is that that we get to have a spouse to, to love and to be loved, that we can have a family and see children born and raised and grow. And, or how about, how amazing is it that we have a church family with so many amazing people in it that we can share life together and learn together and grow together? I mean, when you start thinking about all the amazing things that we get to experience in this world, I mean, we could literally just sit here all night and talk about those. Like if I was to ask you guys what are some amazing things in your life, I'm like literally we could just sit around here and talk and have a conversation about all the amazing things that we need to experience as people on this earth. But can I tell you something? None of that compares to the experience of knowing the amazing grace of God that is found in a relationship with Jesus Christ. Today we are going to be looking into God's Word at honestly one of my favorite stories in the whole Bible. A story maybe that maybe some of you haven't heard. Um, it's not a very well-known one, but I will tell you that it is one of my all-time favorites. It's a story of a man who was crippled, destitute, and on the run, and yet in his hiding he was found and ended up receiving an incredible gift of amazing grace that, cha that changed his life forever. Let's go ahead and read about it, and then we'll ask uh, God's blessing on our time. 2 Samuel chapter 9. Starting in verse 1, says this. One day David asked, 
Is anyone in Saul's family still alive? Anyone to whom I can show kindness for Jonathan's sake? He summoned a man named Ziba, who had been one of Saul's servants. Are you Ziba? The king asked. Yes, sir, I am, Ziba replied. And then the king, um, the king then asked him, is anyone still alive from Saul's family? If so, I want to show God's kindness to them. And Ziba replied, yes, one of Jonathan's sons is still alive. He is crippled in both feet. Well, where is he, the king asked, in, in Lodabar, Ziba told him, and he's at the home of Machir, son of Amiel. And so David sent for him and brought him from Machir's home, and his name was Mephibosheth. He was Jonathan's son and Saul's grandson. And when he came to David, he bowed low to the ground in deep respect. And David said, Greetings, Mephibosheth. And Mephibosheth replied, I am your servant. In verse 7, it says, Don't be afraid, David said. I intend to show kindness to you because of my promise to your father Jonathan. I will give you all the property that once belonged to your grandfather Saul, and you will eat here with me at the king's table. Mephibosheth bowed respectfully and exclaimed, Who is your servant that you should show such kindness to a dead dog like me? And then the king summoned Saul's servant Ziba and said, I have given your master's grandson everything that belonged to Saul and his family. You and your sons and servants are to farm the land for him and produce food for your master's household. But Mephibosheth, your master's grandson, will eat here at my table. Ziba had 15 sons and 20 servants. Ziba replied, Yes, my lord, the king, I am your servant, and I will do all that you have commanded. And from that time on, Mephibosheth ate regularly at David's table like one of the king's own sons. Mephibosheth had a young son named Micah. And from that time, and from then on, all the members of Ziba's household were Mephibosheth's servants. And Mephibosheth, who was crippled in both feet, lived in Jerusalem and ate regularly at the king's table. Let's pray. Father God, thank you so much for this time together. Lord, we thank you for your word and just for this um, account we can read of, of this man who lived so long ago. God, I pray that you would just, uh, just bring it to life in our minds today, Lord. I pray, God, that you would speak to us, that, that you would help us to see the spiritual truths that are here, help us to be encouraged and strengthened and even just in awe by them, Lord. God, I pray that you would remove any distraction from this place. Lord, Satan has no place here because, God, where you are, there's no room for him. And so, Father, reign in our minds, reign in our hearts. Um, just use my lips to speak to your people, God. I submit myself to you in this time, Father, and I, I just ask that we would all do that, and, and God, through that, receive all the glory and honor and praise. In Jesus' precious name, amen. So, as I said, this is probably one of my all-time favorite stories in all the, Bi all the Bible, but to fully appreciate the story of Mephibosheth, we have to actually go back in time a number of years before this account actually happened to really get some context behind this, to fully kind of understand and grasp what's going on in the passage that we just read. So, one of my all-time favorite people in the Bible is David. I mean, David's got a lot of cool stories. Um, you know, about his life and the things that he did. Um, at this particular time in history, David was, that we read here, David was the king of all Israel, but he wasn't always that. And in fact, his road to being king was a very long one and a very difficult one. And David's story kind of goes like this. David was just a teenager. He was a shepherd out taking care of his father's sheep. And he was sitting at that time under the reign of King Saul, who was the first king of Israel. 
Well, although Saul as king started off pretty good, uh, power and greed had gotten the best of him pretty quickly, and and he quickly turned away from God, which resulted in the nation of Israel quickly moving away from God as well. And because of this, God spoke to this man named Samuel, who was essentially the spiritual leader over the nation of Israel at the time. And God told Samuel that he had rejected Saul as king. And not only that, but God told Samuel that he was going to go and he was going to have Samuel go anoint a new king. And this king would, would come from a family of a man named Jesse. He would be one of his sons, and, and little, did know, little did Samuel know at that time that it would be not the oldest son, not the ones that were in the army, the warriors, but that young teenage shepherd boy that was out in the field. Through a series of events, David, as this young teenage boy, then was anointed by Samuel to be the next king of Israel. However, he didn't become king right at that moment. In fact, it was some 15 to 20 years from that point that he actually became king over the nation of Israel. But from that moment he was anointed as king, we really see the story of David begin. And the first thing we see is this amazing feat that he has at the very beginning of of his story where you have this Philistine army that's coming up against the nation of Israel. And they had been at war, but this giant of a man named Goliath kept coming out and taunting the, nation, the, the, the armies of Israel and trying to get just somebody brave enough to come down and fight him. And at this, p- this point, I mean, Israel was scared to death. I mean, these, these, these soldiers were literally shaking in their boots, including King Saul. He wouldn't go out and fight him. And so there they were being taunted by this giant named Goliath that was mocking their God, to which David really uh, took offense to. And so David says, I'll take him on. And so he goes, and on the way, he, he picks up a few stones, and with his shepherd's sling, he, he stands in front of that giant and, and, and kills him by embedding a stone right into his forehead. And an amazing, amazing victory. Well, this, if you, know, you can imagine, uh, it made David almost an instant superstar in the nation of Israel. As Saul and the army and David came back to, um, to the people from the war after the Philistines had been defeated, the people lined the streets and started shouting this, Saul has killed his thousands, but David has killed his ten thousands. And this just ate Saul up on the inside. He became essentially jealous of David, and from that point, he really became David's enemy. So much so that a number of occasions, in his rage of jealousy, Saul tried to kill David. We, we can read sometimes where David was just playing music. He played the harp for Saul. And Saul just has this fit of rage and takes a spear. He says, I'm going to pin him to the wall. And he throws a spear and misses him. And David runs and escapes. And it all kind of culminates to where Saul is he, he's so angry at David that he, he, he makes this plot that he's going to have him killed, right? And it would have worked had it not been for Saul's son, whose name was Jonathan, that also just happened to be the heir to the throne of Israel because he was Saul's oldest son. From the moment David kind of comes on the scene in in Israel, Saul's oldest son Jonathan and David become friends. And not just any type of friends. I mean, these guys were best friends. In fact, you could say that they were kindred spirits. Um, They just had a a, a deeper connection than just uh, a normal 
acquaintance. And this is a good thing for David because when Jonathan caught wind of his father's plot to kill his friend, he went out and warned David and saved his life. Now, why would Jonathan do that? David was not only a threat to his father's throne, David was a threat to Jonathan's throne as well. And it's because, here's the reason why, because Jonathan was nothing like his father. Jonathan was a God-fearing, godly man, and he knew, because he told David, that he knew that he was God's choice for the throne. And he essentially let the throne go and gave it to David and submitted to David as the rightful king. That'll preach in itself. There's something about that, right, when it comes to <laughs> submitting to the rightful king in heaven. But this is kind of what we see in Jonathan, and it's really the last time David sees Jonathan, at least in this life. But before, before they parted, they made this covenant together, this, this compact, if you will, together, where Jonathan came to David and spoke these words in 1 Samuel chapter 20. Verses 14 and 15, and, and Jonathan said this to, the, to David. He says, May you treat me with the faithful love of the Lord as long as I live, but if I die, treat my family with this faithful love. Even when the Lord destroys all of your enemies from the face of the earth. And then in verse 42, Jonathan said to David, Go in peace, for we have sworn loyalty to each other in the Lord's name. The Lord is the witness of a bond between us and our children forever. And then David left Jonathan and returned to town. Now, from that point, David was on the run literally for his life for a long time because Saul kept chasing him. And the only thing that stopped Saul from chasing him was the Philistines once again came to war against Israel, and Saul and Jonathan and two, of, two other of his brothers were killed. But that still didn't stop the issues David had. At that, at that point, David became king of the lower kingdom of Israel, which was known as Judah. But the northern kingdom and some of the tribes were still controlled by one of like Saul's last son, Ishabeth. And Ishabeth didn't like David either, so for the next couple of years, he waged war on David as well. So you could say that when it came to Saul and Saul's family, they headed out for David. And they did everything they could do to destroy David. Through a series of events, Ishabeth also dies, and the people of the northern tribe come to David, and they submit to him as king. And David becomes king then over all of Israel. He defeats his enemies, and he's now at this place of peace. He's set up in his new royal palace in Jerusalem. But David then remembers the promise that he made to that best friend. That best friend, Jonathan, all those years before this. And we can see that there in verse 1 of chapter 9, where David remembers the promise that he had made. And he wanted now to make good on his end of the bargain. And so, and so David comes and he asks, is, is there anyone from Saul's family still alive that he can show kindness to for Jonathan's sake? So we get to verse 2 and we see that this man named Ziba comes into the picture. And Ziba was a man who was a servant of King Saul. Before King, while King Saul was still king, and, and so David comes and he, and he asks Ziba, is there anybody that I can show the kindness of God to? He even goes a step further. He, he just didn't want to bless somebody. He wanted to show this descendant of Saul 
the kindness of God. This, this statement really brings this to a whole nother, nother level because he wasn't just being a nice guy. He wanted to express the love of God through himself to this person to which Zebra replied, yes, there is one man named Mephibosheth who was crippled in both feet and that man just happened to be the son of Jonathan who just happened to be David's best friend all those years ago. I mean, no doubt that this gave um, David some excitement that he not only could bless um, one of Saul's relatives and hold true in his promise to Jonathan, but literally he could bless one of Jonathan's very own sons. In verse 4, we see that at this particular time, Mephibosheth was living with this man named Makir. Kind of an odd name, but it really, he really must have been a great man because he was somebody that came to David's aid years later when David was on the run, run from his son Absalom, when Absalom tried to usurp David's throne and, and David was on the run. This same man whom Mephibosheth was housing went to David's aid a number of years later. But, but Mephibosheth was staying at this man's house in the city called Lodabar. Now, if you can picture Israel... Jerusalem's here, where David was. Lodabar is clear up here across the Jordan River, way over there. About as far away as you could possibly get from where David was. And it's interesting sometimes what the names of these places mean. For, For instance, Lodabar means a place of no pasture. It said that it was actually like a barren wasteland. No doubt so symbolic of the life that he was living. A man that used to be royalty and now living like a pauper in a barren wasteland. And so in verse 5, David sends his men to go get him and bring him back to Jerusalem. And and in verse 6, when Mephibosheth comes before David's throne, he comes in and he just throws himself, it seems, at David's feet and just says, I am your servant. Now, why would he do that? Why why would Mephibosheth come and, and lay himself down before the king like that? And to understand this, a historical culture understanding at this point is really important. Because at this particular time in history not just in Israel, but, but, but around the place uh, where, where they were at in the Middle East, when a, a new king would come to power, to put it nicely, they would dispatch any threats to their power. Meaning, if there was any family at all left over from the prior king, they would have them killed. This was just normal practice. And so Mephibosheth... Um, was up there because he literally feared for his life because he thought if I was found out, I'd be put to death just like all these surrounding people. In fact, the whole reason that Mephibosheth was lame in both feet was because of this very fear. Back in 2 Samuel chapter 4 and verse 4, we, we were kind of introduced to Mephibosheth and it says this, Saul's son Jonathan had a son named Mephibosheth who was crippled as a child. He was five years old when the report came from Jezreel that Saul and Jonathan had been killed in battle. And when the child's nurse heard the news, she picked him up and fled. But as she hurried away, she dropped him and he became crippled. And so the whole reason he couldn't walk is because he was dropped being rushed away to save his life for that very reason that he was now bowing before the feet of David because he thought that he was done for, essentially. However, what we see David say from that point is that in verse 7, the fear was unwarranted because he says, don't be afraid. He intends to show kindness to you. Why? Not because Mephibosheth deserved it. Not because he had earned it. It was because of a promise that he was... 
making good on, a promise that he had made to his best friend Jonathan all those years before. You know, my guess is that Mephibosheth had no idea that his father and, and David were such good friends. And David went on to tell him that uh, he was going to give Mephibosheth and his family all the family lands that King Saul had possessed before his death. Well, and King Saul was king, so you know he had lots of land. And so David just says, look, this land, it is yours. In fact, these servants over here, Ziba and your family, you're actually going to go and you're going to take care of the land and plant it and harvest it and provide food for their family. But Mephibosheth, here's what you're going to do. You're going to sit at my table. He says, you're, gonna, you're not going to have to go over there. You're going to sit at the king's table, we see there in verse 7. And, and obviously this came as a shock to the system because Mephibosheth was just like, I'm, I'm no better than a dead dog. He looked at himself as absolutely worthless and absolutely useless and certainly absolutely unworthy of this amazing favor that David the king was giving to him because he went in there thinking that he was going to be executed and instead David's like, no, you're going to come and sit at my table. And so in verses 9 and 10, David calls Ziba back in and tells them the news that they're going to take care of the land. And in verses 11 and 12, 11 and 12 says that from that point on, Mephibosheth lived in the king's city, which was Jerusalem. And he not only ate at the table of David, it says, he says what? He ate at the table just like one of the king's own sons. Essentially, Mephibosheth was treated like royalty at that point on in his life. I mean, the reason I love this story partly is because I'm kind of a sucker for a, a rags to riches story, you know what I mean? I mean, talk about an amazing gift, a, a poor, crippled, helpless, hopeless, homeless man who was on the run for his life ends up living out the rest of his days as royalty, having a relationship with the king like a son with a man that had every right to destroy him and instead showed amazing grace to him. Does that sound familiar at all when we put it that way? You know why this is one of my favorite stories in all the Bible? Because of the spiritual picture it gives. Because we're a whole lot more like Mephibosheth than we probably realize. And the amazing grace that we've been given is far greater than the gift that Mephibosheth was given. And yet the picture we see is absolutely beautiful. You know, have you ever wondered, have you ever wondered why God shows stories like this to put down in the Bible? I mean, of all the events that happen throughout history, we just see a, a snapshot of what actually transpired throughout history. And yet these short 13 verses telling the story of this kind of no-name man ends up in the Bible. So what's the significance of it? And as I said, the significance of it is that there may be no other story in the Bible that better illustrates the kindness and the amazing grace of God that we've been given through the greatest gift of all, which is Christ. The gift of God's Son, whom he sent to this earth as a human so they could go to a cross and die for our sins, so opening up the door to heaven that our relationship with the, with the Father in heaven could be restored. Why? So that we could come to him. We who were undeserving. We who deserve to die and, and yet instead have been offered a seat at the table of the king. As a child 
of the living God. Not as human royalty, but as heavenly royalty. You know, we see Mephibosheth here, and he's in this just absolutely hopeless, helpless state. A man, according to the culture, that deserved to die, that should have died, he was in, should have been an enemy of the king, and yet the king saw him differently. You know, we think Mephibosheth was bad off. You know what the Bible says about those that are separated from God? We're, we're separated from God, we're also hopeless. We're also helpless. We're also, because we were considered to be enemies of God, people deserving of God's wrath. You know, in Revelation chapter 3 and verse 17, it gives a description of a non-believer. I mean, we think Mephibosheth was in a bad spot. He was, he was crippled. He was in Lodabar, a place of forgetting. And yet, the Bible describes the person that is unsaved as wretched, miserable, poor, blind, naked. Mephibosheth, by all accounts, should have been considered an enemy of David, but consider what the Bible says about us before Christ. Romans chapter 5 and verse 10 tells us that before we were reconciled to God, we were enemies of God. Enemies of the cross. Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, tells us that before Christ we were dead in our trespasses and sins. Spiritually dead. It said we walked according to the course of the world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Who is that? Satan. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience. We all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath. That, that's who we were. That's who people are because of their sin. Children of wrath, enemies of God, and, and we're all there. We've all sinned and fallen short of God's glory, Romans 3.23 tells us. And, and, and for those of anybody that might think, well, I'm not sure that I'm a sinner. Well, how about 1 John 1.8 that says, if we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. So it's pretty clear that we are all pretty well messed up. And you know, think about Mephibosheth. What could he do about his situation? He couldn't have gotten himself a seat at the king's table. What could he have done in his own power ever to end up getting what he had freely offered to him? He couldn't do anything about it. Can I tell you something? The same is true of a person separated from Christ. No matter how hard a person tries, there is not enough they could do to ever gain a seat at the king's table in heaven. In fact, here's what Romans chapter 3, verses 10 through 18 tells us about us before Christ. It says that there's no one righteous, not even one. No one is wise. No one even seeks God. All have turned away. All have become useless. No one does good, not a single one. Their talk is foul, like the stench of an open grave. Their tongues are filled with lies. Snake venom drips from their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They rush to commit murder. Destruction and misery always follow them. They don't know where to find peace, and they have no fear of God at all. That is the person's condition before Christ. There is nothing in a person that themselves chase after the Lord. Uh -uh. He chases after us. In that condition, 
When we were absolutely, utterly helpless, the Lord chased after us. Just like David went and chased after Mephibosheth. Romans chapter 5 and verse 6 is before Jesus, we were utterly helpless. We were in a spiritual Lodabar before Christ. A place of no pasture, a place of no satisfaction, a barren wasteland of a life leading to nowhere but death and destruction. That's who we were. That's the condition we were in, bound for eternal death, according to Romans 6.23 that says the wages of sin is death. I mean, we think Mephibosheth was in a bad condition. Separated from Christ, we were way worse off. But just like David sent an envoy to go and get Mephibosheth, guess what God did? He sent an envoy as well to bring back his people to himself. You know who that envoy was? His name was the Son, Jesus Christ. See, the gift of Christ is an amazing, amazing gift. We think Mephibosheth was offered an amazing gift. Think about what we've been offered. I've already said Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. We who were deserving of death, God, instead of destroying us, sent his son Jesus to die in our place so that we could have the offer of life. Through God's gift of Christ to this world, he now offers not just life, not just spiritual life, but eternal life. We think about the offer of Romans 5. 6 through 10 says, when we were utterly helpless, Christ came at just the right time and died for us sinners. Now, most people would not be willing to die for an upright person, though someone might perhaps be willing to die for a person who was especially good. But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by his de- the death of his son while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved through the life of his son. We who are in an awful condition, an awful state because of sin, an enemy of God, while we were there, unable to help ourselves, God sent his envoy, Jesus Christ, so that he could bring us back to himself. Just like the king sent an envoy to go bring back Mephibosheth back to himself. But he doesn't just offer eternal life. He offers, he offers what I'm going to call sonship. Now this is kind of a biblical term, and it's kind of a cultural thing when you think about when the Bible was written. This isn't like a, a knock toward the ladies in here. But, but you need to understand what this means because this, this isn't just for the men and the boys in here. Sonship is offered to all of us. Doesn't matter if you're matter if you're a man or a woman, because it's not the idea of gender; it's the idea of position. When it comes to this in Scripture, when I say sonship, I'm talking about the offer to become children of the living God. Listen to listen to John chapter one, verses twelve and thirteen. As many as received him, speaking of Jesus, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh, but of the will, not the will of man, but of the will of God. Galatians chapter 3 and verse 26 says that all sons of God, we are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. Second Corinthians chapter 6 and verse 18 
The Lord says, I will be a father to you, and you shall be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. Isn't it amazing? This is the offer that God has made through Christ. Not just eternal life, but that we could become like his son, adopted into his family as his children. You think about Mephibosheth, he wasn't just offered a seat at the king's table, he was treated as if he was the son of the king himself, and the same is true, the same offer goes for us as people. We're not just offered heaven as second-hand citizens, we're not going to be beggars pleading for scraps at the king's table, no, we have a seat at the table, and that's the offer that he has for us. In fact, in heaven we're going to be royalty. Heavenly royalty. Galatians chapter 4 and verse 7. Therefore you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Romans eight seventeen tells us we are heirs, even heirs with Christ himself. Meaning all that's Christ also belongs to us. How amazing is that? He also offers us a new home. Mephibosheth moved from Lodabar to the king's town there in Jerusalem. You know what the Bible says about heaven? Jesus said this in John 14, 2 and 3, There is more than enough room in my father's house. If this were not so, would I have not told you? That I am, that he says, what, what I have told you then that I'm going to prepare a place for you. And when everything is ready, I'm going to come and get you so that you can always be with me where I am. I mean, Jesus right now is preparing our heavenly home. There's a room for you and there's a room for me. We can be in his presence, in his town, in his city, in his home forever, living as heavenly royals with a seat at the king's table. Revelation chapter 19, verses 7 through 9, talks about the invitations that are going out to this great future feast in which Jesus, King Jesus, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, will be at the head of the table. And guess who's going to be around it? I will be. Because I know I'm a savior. I mean, you think Mephibosheth had an incredible offer. That is nothing compared to the offer we've been given in Christ. But so I, I always ask myself little questions like, what if Mephibosheth said no? How crazy would that have been? You ever think about that? Like, he comes there and he's offered this, and he's just like, nah, I don't think so. I'll go back to Lodabar. I'll go be a poor man begging, depending on somebody else, in a barren wasteland. Can we just say that? It would have been stupid. Maybe I shouldn't say that. It would have been ignorant. Can I tell you something? You know how many people hear the offer of Christ, the greatest gift ever given to man? The greatest gift ever possibly that could be given to anybody. And people say no. Isn't that ignorant? Why would anybody say no to that? To eternal life, to a place at the king's table with a home of your own in heaven as an adopted son, an heir of all that is God's. And people say, no, nah, I don't think so. Why? Because they want to hold on to whatever this world has. They'd rather stay in Lodabar in a world that could never possibly fulfill them. Boy. Which leads me to this last thought. Mephibosheth had the right response when he came to David. And it really 
shows what our response should be to this offer of grace that we've been given from the Lord. Mephibosheth, that's a hard word to say, Mephibosheth, there we go, got it out, said yes to David, but his initial response to David is exactly what our response should be before the Lord. See, Mephibosheth recognized three things. He recognized whose presence he was in. He knew David had the power to destroy him. He knew that the only right response that he could have was to throw himself in submission at David's feet and beg just for the opportunity to be his servant. And when David offered him what he did, Mephibosheth recognized completely that he was absolutely unworthy of it, of, the, of that gift. Can I tell you something? That's a good attitude to have when it comes to the Lord. I mean, when you think about the offer and who the offer comes from, we're talking about the holy God of heaven that spoke everything that we know into existence. We're talking about these most powerful, the most powerful being that will ever exist, ever, right? And we know ourselves. We know that we're sinners. We know we messed up. We know our hearts are dirty. And yet he's saying, look, I'm going to wipe it all clean, and I'm going to give you a place at my table as my own son. I mean, is there something about that that you just go... Why would you do that? I'm not worthy of that. I don't deserve that. No, I'd be happy just to pick up the scraps at the table. I'd be happy to be a street sweeper in heaven. And yet that's not what he offers. He offers us to be his own. However, a response like Mephibosheth should be the same. Because of that offer, the right response is to throw ourselves at the feet of our king and say, I'm yours. I will be your servant. I will do whatever it is that you call me to do. That's the right response to the offer that we've been given. And you know the beauty of that? Is it doesn't matter what you've done or how far gone you were or how big of an enemy you think you are of the Lord. Because Romans 10, 13 says that anyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Anyone. How do we do that? Romans 10, 9 and 10 tells us that if we will simply openly declare with our mouths that Jesus is Lord and believe in our hearts that God raised him from the dead, we will be saved. For it is by believing in our heart that you are made right with God, and it is by openly declaring your faith that you are saved. And when a person comes to God in faith, believing upon what Jesus did, and just says, Jesus, I confess my sins. Please forgive me. Come into my life. Be my Lord. Be my Savior. Help me to live for you like that. All of those promises come to fruition. Eternal life, yours. Sins, gone. You become a child of the king. Your future is secured. Like forever? Like we can't do anything to mess that up? This whole story of Mephibosheth here was based on a covenant. Was, was based on a, a promise that David made to his, friend, to his friend Jonathan. Can I tell you something? We have better promises than that because they came from the mouth of God himself. Sealed by the blood of Christ himself. See, years ago, I mean, thousands of years ago, God made a promise way back when sin came and first came into the world. Way back in Genesis 3, he made this statement, this covenant, this promise with the people of this earth. And he said there's going to be a day that the head of Satan is going to be crushed. The head of the serpent is going to be crushed. And it was at the cross. 
He made a promise to Abraham that if he would follow him, he would make him a blessing to the whole world, a blessing that, that came to fruition in the, per, in the person of Jesus. Throughout the Old Testament and the prophets and all those real long books and some of those short, tiny, money prophets at the end of the, end of the Old Testament, this time after time after, again, they, they talk about this Messiah, this Savior that God was promising them all came to fruition in the per, person of Jesus. God held true on his promise. And you know what he did? He went to the cross, just like the Old Testament prophesied, and, and he did the work of salvation for us. And the, when the Bible says when a person comes to faith in Christ, they're sealed. They're sealed for the day of redemption, and there's nothing that anybody could do about that because it's confirmed with the most precious stamp, the most powerful stamp that has ever existed, and it's the blood of Christ. 1 Corinthians 11.25, Jesus said this cup is a new covenant between God and his people, an agreement confirmed with his blood. What's the covenant all about? It's a promise that those who have been saved by the blood of, by the blood of Christ will remain saved for all of eternity. Just like salvation does not come by the deeds we do, we don't retain our salvation by the deeds we do. We are bought, we are paid for, and we are sealed by the blood of Christ. Praise God. God has cast all of our sins, the Bible says, as far as the east is from the west. Listen to Hebrews 8, 12. I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins, the Lord says. Ephesians 4, and verse 30 says, we are sealed for the day of redemption. John chapter 10, verses 28 and 29 says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish. No one can ever snatch them away from me, for my Father has given them to me, and he is more powerful than anyone else, and no one can snatch them out of my Father's hand. That's you, and that's me if you know Christ. Romans 8, 38 and 39, I'm convinced that nothing can ever separate us from God's love, neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither fears for today or worries about tomorrow. Not even the power of hell itself can separate us from God's love. No power in the sky above or in the earth below. Indeed, nothing in all of creation will ever be able to separate us from the love of God that is revealed to us in Christ Jesus our Lord. You think, are you sure that I can't do anything to mess this up? No, because 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 5 tells us that God is protecting you by His power, not ours. And in Titus chapter 3, verses 4 through 7, it says, When God our Savior revealed His kindness and love, He saved us. Not because of the righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He washed away our sins, giving us a new birth and a new life through the Holy Spirit. He generously poured out the Spirit upon us through Jesus Christ our Savior. And listen to verse 7. And because of His grace, He made us right in His sight and gave us confidence that we will, not may, not might, not hope to be, we will inherit eternal life. Friends, that's the offer and that's what God will do. Mephibosheth was in a bad spot. We were in a worse spot. Mephibosheth, David chased after him to bring him to himself. The Lord sent a greater person than Jesus to come chase after us. The offer Mephibosheth had was incredible, but our offer is even more incredible than that. Mephibosheth responded rightly. Make sure that we all respond rightly as well. 
The offer of grace is there. Eternal life is available. All we got to do is reach out and take it and say yes. Say yes to Jesus today. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for this day and for this time in your word and just for this incredible story that we read in the Bible. Lord God, my prayers that we have been encouraged tonight. Lord, those of us that are, that are already, that already know Christ as Savior, I pray that, that this would just excite us that as, as we're reminded all over again of who we used to be before Jesus and what God has done through, through, through his grace in our lives. And Lord, let us never lose sight of that. And let, us, let, let the amazement of that, Lord God, never fade. But Father, if there be even one person in this place that has never made a decision to follow Christ, man, God, don't help them not to say no. Help them to say yes. Just like Mephibosheth said okay, even though he knew he didn't deserve it, he said okay. And he sat at the king's table. Lord God, let the people that don't know you say yes to the offer that you've given them in Christ. Simply by coming to you in prayer and asking Jesus to come into their life as to be their Lord and Savior. Heavenly Father, we love you and we praise you for your goodness and your amazing, amazing grace. And it's in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. As we close, guys, we're going to sing that old song, Amazing Grace.